We are in the fourth of the 12 statements from our report on human sexuality. I want to give you a little bit of sum a summary view as we head into this lesson. Today it's on the very important topic of desire. The statements start to really compound on each other and they dig in deeper. One will be a more general statement like original sin last week, and now we'll talk about desire and how desire fits in or is connected to original sin. And then concupiscence, which is a, a term that was coined by Roman Catholic medieval theologians to describe um, desire that is, is culpable, that you're guilty of, or, and then the kind that you're not. And they would describe all sorts of kind that you're not which is different than from what the Bible teaches on this topic, but it was a way to explain away desires that you can have and not call them sin. And it becomes a very important feature in this whole topic, and that's next week. And then it goes from uh, concupiscence um, into temptation. What is, how does temptation figure into our experience related to our desires and so forth? All of this, you'll notice, it translates beyond just human sexuality discussion. We're focusing on the human sexuality component because of the the importance of this topic in our times, that we think clearly about this. But you'll notice like our battle with sin, everybody's battle with sin, um, whatever it may be, there's, most of this translates directly. We can appreciate and reflect upon it. So it's not just talking about same-sex attraction issues or human sexuality issues. Let's pray and then I'll begin. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to meet again and talk about these important topics from uh, the perspective of your word. I pray that you'd uh, please guide me as I teach, that um, what I would teach would be accurate and that the brethren here would um, be studying and digging in and prayerfully considering all the things we are addressing, and that you'd uh, conform us to the image of Christ and also make us uh, more compassionate, more caring and patient in understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a few reasons why we're doing this class. Just let me remind you quickly what they are. Um, the first and foremost, uh, Christians have to be aware of what the Scripture says. All too often we're reactionary, like an issue confronts us from the wider culture, and then we react. And oftentimes when we react, it isn't always most loving, and, it's, and it can be defensive, and sometimes our arguments aren't even any good. We're just reacting emotionally. So rather than have that happen, we should be built up in our understanding of what the Bible says so that when something that um, isn't in accord with Scripture comes, we're not freaking out about it. We're just like, well, wait, there's a reason. You're coming from this perspective. You're, first of all, you're, you're starting with the notion that everybody is basically good. And we got to go back and readdress that. And so it's a wider discussion. It's never simple. And we don't want to come off as simple with these things because they're complex issues that, fa that people face when they interact, when they experience these things. So it's important for us to have a thorough understanding of the scriptures. If you're in high school, all the way up and through adulthood, and even our young ones should start learning the components of these things, and they will as they learn what the Bible says about marriage and human nature and such. But we just become more stable in our understanding. So it's important for us to be aware of what Scripture teaches. This will help us to personally obey and assess our own feelings, our own desires, our own challenges, but it will also allow us to give a thoughtful explanation that doesn't come off as reactionary or hateful, but just patiently, hey, this is what we believe. We can converse about it. We may end up disagreeing if we, as we talk to people, but you'll talk much more, um, you'll be much more uh, diplomatic, and I don't mean by compromise, but just you'll be more careful about how you interact with others if you're not in defense mode because, oh, you're attacking something I believe, or you're doing something, or you're saying something that's terrible, and we start thinking in those lines we can't really then have good interaction. Um, so 
that's an important feature of why we're learning this in this context. We think it's important for the whole church to be together for this, at least for one quarter, uh, because this topic is such a hot topic in culture, and every one of us will be faced with, com- with aspects of this pressure. It'll happen in your workplace, it'll happen in your school, it could happen in your neighborhoods, um, it could happen on the sports team you're on, it could happen um, uh, really virtually every level, there'll be some pressures uh, upon Christians to make statements or to comply with or comport with things that we wouldn't agree with. So we want to know a little bit about how should we navigate that and uh, how, where to take stands and how to go about dealing with it. Um, they're really, when you think about it from, a, from the way in which all our institutions are so tied together, even in our country, even Christian ones, um, it will definitely have pressure on our schools, our colleges, Christian organizations. Um, even at some point, the money you give uh, that you donate to the church in tithe, which the church completely depends on. Now, most of you can write that off as a, as a tax benefit. Um, but if they decide that we're bigots because we promote this bigotry, they may take away that. Then will Christians continue to support the church? Now, I believe they will, but that's a big deal for a lot of you as far as how much you give and what that means for, I know it is for me, uh, and it's probably a pittance compared to a lot of people, but it would be a, it would be a, a, a financial hit if all of a sudden we had that benefit taken away. Or if your child couldn't get a Pell Grant or a government loan to go to the Christian college because Christian college is a bigoted institution. Um, so there are really practical things that we'll address, that we'll see addressing us. So no one can escape this. So you should at least know, the way I like to put it is, know why you're suffering or know what it is that you're, you're, you need to stand up for and maybe pay a price for. Uh, the more you know it, the easier, um, easier is not the right word, but um, it becomes uh, more, underst- you're more settled and content as to why you have to go about this and do this the way uh, that you choose to do this based on the word. So that's what, one of the reasons why. It's such a hot topic, and it's something that's not going to get less, um, less pointed. Also, even in our own denomination and in most evangelical denominations, there's lots of honing that's going on in this. There's topics that have never come up before that are now coming up. Individuals in our denomination, we have one individual in particular, a pastor who's pushing this envelope um, really strong, so it's causing the denomination to be clearer about it. One of the outcomes is this human sexuality report, which I think is one of the best reports put out in recent years. It's a great report for this generation, and that's what we're teaching through. I'm just explaining each of the statements. So those are the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. Now, what are the topics? We're on week four. So we talked first week about marriage. Um, The Bible's expression and explanation and pattern for marriage becomes really pivotal for answering all those what-if questions or those hypotheticals because there's probably a thousand different scenarios people can throw at you. Is this okay? Is that okay? If we have the pattern down right from the get-go, which is partially connected also to preaching through Genesis, um, having Carl Truman come and address some of these issues, now we're talking about it here. The marriage the biblical model for marriage becomes a very, very pivotal point in our explanation and understanding, in our argument, in our explanation um, uh, for why we believe what we believe as it relates to human sexuality. Um, the establishment of marriage between one man and one woman, it's the standard by which all other relationship possibilities are measured. That's where you measure it. Uh, the Bible's pattern or model for marriage 
it necessarily eliminates other possible arrangements. For instance, it eliminates polygamy as an option. It eliminates same-sex marriage. It eliminates sexual practice or sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. So throw at me a 5,000 different possibilities and I can point you back to does it fit in these parameters? And if it doesn't, you know that it's a perversion of it or it's, it works outside of God's plan for it. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say, the Bible doesn't actually say that much about homosexuality. Well, actually it does. It does actually address it pretty specifically a lot, both in Old New Testament. But even if it didn't have the specific reference to the activity itself, um, it actually, in laying out the marriage pattern, eliminates necessarily that which is around it. So don't listen to, when people say that, that that's, that's, first of all, someone's not really read the Bible, or they're absolutely trying to discredit what they know the Bible says, you know, any number of reasons why someone might be motivated, or they're just ignorant. They're the third, you know, their professor told them, and then their classmate told them, and they don't really know what the Bible says. Um, they're just saying that as a way of just putting off the argument. Sometimes people will say, well, the Old Testament talks about it, but Jesus doesn't really talk about homosexuality that much. Not really fair, because he, on multiple occasions, very explicitly affirms the exact, quotes the Genesis pattern for marriage. So every time he does that, he necessarily eliminates those things as well. Um, there are been, there's a thousand and one different perversions mankind has come up with over the years. The Bible doesn't address every one of those, rather gives us the pattern for it so that we're able to answer this. Um, the Bible doesn't explicitly address, although it does, um, some, bestiality, uh, pedophilia, necrophilia, you go down the list of perversions, um, but it does address by the clear model for marriage given in Genesis 1 and affirmed throughout Scripture um, what marriage is and, and how we are to assess everything else. Marriage is ordained for the mutual blessing it provides, husband and wife, it also for procreation, for propagating the race, for propagating the church in Christian terms. Um, also to prevent sexual immorality that can come. Um, it provides a venue, if you will, or an arrangement for that expression. And then, of course, marriage, as we see in Ephesians, is a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church and that beautiful picture that emerges. So there's lots at stake with upholding the biblical model for marriage. Um, and because we are a body-soul nexus, necessarily what we do physically impacts us spiritually. You can't just say, well, it's, it's just a physical act. Nothing that you do with your body is just utterly a physical act. There's, you're, you're a body-soul nexus, and you will be a body-soul nexus for all of eternity. There will be an anomalous period when you die and your body goes in the grave and your soul goes to be with the Lord. There, that's the only time that you won't have body-soul. And I'm not convinced that we'll even know that much of an experience of the passage at that time. Um, the, your eternity will be spent body-soul. Jesus is a body and soul for eternity. And likewise, we will be in our glorified state. So it's, it's, it's really trite. It's not fair. It actually does people great harm when you, when, not you, but when it's said that, you know, doing physical acts or whatever, that doesn't really affect you spiritually. It's not true at all. That's why most people, that's why people are in such pain who live lives that are out of accord with what God has laid out uh, because they're affected as spiritual beings. It's not just psychology either. Um, it, it has to do, our, our, our mind materially also has a spiritual connection. So um, the marriage pattern is the starting point for this understanding of human sexuality. 
Then we looked at the image of God. I'll just say this more briefly as a review. Based on Genesis 1, the image of God, um, very specifically, God creates mankind, and he makes mankind two genders, male and female. Um, That's how mankind is made up. That's the original state of things. And our bodies are a glorious creation of God in their original state, and deemed very good when God looks. So physical is not bad or evil, where spiritual is good. Um, The body-soul nexus in original state is beautiful, and that includes the physical body. Um, Now, there's confusion that comes in because of the fall, and that's where all the issues arise. That's what we get to with original sin. So our capacity to analyze these things is really skewed and messed up, and we have to recognize that as a reality. And so that can cause us some of the confusions we have about genders or about the way we should view sexuality at all. Or frankly, anything, anything sensual, anything that we can taste, touch, or feel, like food. I mean, I always like to disconnect it from an area that maybe the specifics of it you're not struggling with, but take it to another area where we're tied physically to something that's something good that God makes, but we have a really tough time with it, a really hard relationship with it. Food's a good one uh, because we like the way it tastes. We overdo it and we want satisfaction from it and we get addicted to it and we eat too much of it. And we do, it's a good thing starting, but then we end up going down in a skewed fashion and our relationship with it is a mess. That's because we have, we're incapacitated in our ability to analyze this stuff and control this stuff. Only God can give us aid and it's not won't be perfected this life, even as Christians. We'll still struggle with it. Um, this is the, the real truth on what it's like to roll in, sinful, uh, in our sinful condition, um, even as regenerated people. We'll see that a little bit even again today. Um, so we have to follow Scripture is the bottom line um, because our feelings are confused. Um, they seem to oppose God's design. And, and in taking, taking advice from people who are also confused and have nothing but their own basis, their own, their own baseline for understanding anything is advice to you should not make you feel secure. Just because you found 10 other people that will affirm your perversion doesn't mean that's a safe place to be, whatever it may be, whatever realm. We've got to go to Scripture. We've got to go to what God says. And it's painful sometimes because it doesn't feel like what we want to do. And that's, that's normal because we are, we're the ones that are askew, but the reality is um, Scripture will confront us and it won't in, in, in initial, it won't feel right. We'll be like, that doesn't feel right. I, I got to talk to someone who'll make me f- affirm my feelings. And we find people and, and we wallow in our ignorance together and the misery compounds, but, but we're all together. And you guys are oppressing us because you keep telling us that we're feeling bad because we're sinning. We're feeling bad because you're telling us you're, we're sinning. And this relationship develops when we've got to step out of all that to see what does the God of the universe who designed it all say about these things. Because if we go against this, we can be sure it will lead us to more misery because that's what sin always ends with. It always does. For a moment, it might feel okay, but it never does after. And if it doesn't after, it's not the fault of people who are saying it's sin. It's because it's sin and it causes us this unrest. So, Nevertheless, and I love the pattern you'll see in the report, they'll make the statement about what Scripture says, but then it'll give a pastoral point of compassionate interaction with people who are struggling, which, by the way, is everybody at some level in some way. But in this particular topic, we're talking about human sexuality. Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. It's a real torture for someone to deal with this, to have to go through this. And there are many reasons why someone might have that issue. 
Um, there could be things done to them, or there, there could be so many th- reasons for why a person struggles with it. We should have great compassion. And don't ever think that you couldn't have the same um, issue in your life arise or with another area that just it's inexplicable to you and you can't shake it. Other people don't seem to struggle with it, but you do. Um, so compassion is called for for all of us and patience to minister to folks. We don't, we don't compromise what the Word says, but we're very careful in, in um, long-suffering with anyone who's dealing with this and says they're dealing with this and want to struggle you know, against it. And then last week we looked at original sin. We got in deeper to the topic of how badly um, that first fall of Adam affects us in our, in our mechanisms for our, our moral compass, if you will. Um, I think this might be one of the most, um, one of the most warped areas in wider culture. And unfortunately, it's really impacted a lot, lots of Christians and Christian theology too. Um, it's not just a Calvinistic point to, make a, to emphasize that the Bible teaches that we're totally affected, we're totally depraved is what the Bible says. Um, yes, that's a point that, that Reformed and Calvinistic thought brought out in the Scriptures, but you can go before the Reformation and find the major um, exegetes of Scripture, the ones who are dealing with Scripture, and they all have a resounding, um, a resounding um, emphasis on what original sin has done. In the first councils of the churches, there was a discussion about the person of Christ as the main thing, but there was this nonstop underlying discussion about how radically the fall had affected because there would be this rising push to say man is better than we think he is. And then there would be a, uh, if you do that, that opens up all the other areas become um, compromised and skewed in our understanding of how to deal with sin. And there would always be a voice of from holding scripture to say, no, we're completely dead in our trespasses and sins. Multiple times this happens throughout church history. And of course, Calvin and Arminius becomes, you know, the one we think of the most, but it happened way before that. It happened way before that. Augustine had a similar argument with Pelagius. Um, And before that, there were arguments that you can see about the root of sin in us and how it affects. So I I don't want to keep emphasizing this point because we'll talk more about it with desire. But the original sin feature and what you think it has done to our capacities, it becomes very foundational in the rest of our understanding. In our confession of faith in chapter 6, just two, cha- just two sections I'll remind you of. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts and soul and body. So our natural state is wholly defiled in all of our, every part of us is touched by this. Then it says, this corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. So even when you become a believer, there is that uh, residual sin that we have to constantly fight off and put off. Now, in Christ, you have a legal righteousness before him, which becomes um, your stability to know even though you're struggling, you're safe in Jesus. And you can thus join in the the fight against it. Not against it to earn salvation, but to manifest the salvation you've been given. Um, so it's a beautiful picture of what God gives to us by his grace and then continues to 
uh, work through us, but we're always working through it this side of eternity. We're always struggling against residual sin. But if you're not a believer, you're not regenerated, you're not struggling against it. You're just trying to justify it. You may be uncomfortable with it because it's going against your divine design or it's causing you trouble because sin does, but that's not the same. Uh, that's more of a, a guilt for what it's causing you in discomfort rather than a, I'm offending the God of the universe and Lord, forgive me, help me to mortify this sin. There's a big difference between those two approaches. Bottom line is, we are not basically good. Um, no matter what the movies tell us um, and the wider culture promotes, mankind left long enough will not come up with a solution. They'll only find worse things. Most things degrade, they don't get better. And that's because more and more dependence um, goes towards man and his ability to get out of the problem, and they only make the problem worse. That's what we've seen. It's demonstrable. Um, much more can be said, but now we lead to these, this next triad of topics, desire, concupiscence, and temptation, these things together. Let's talk about desire today. Look at your insert, and desire is now getting into the, into the, the more acute topic itself when we're talking about human sexuality and what we experience the statement says, we affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, that's what we've been saying, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. So for, these are things that you don't even say out loud, that you just feel, that you sense, that you have affections or passions concerning. Those passions themselves are sinful. Even without acting out on them, they are in themselves sinful, and we're guilty before God because of those. Um, those flow from our original sin. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. From time to time, you'll hear people say, well, you got to quit feeling guilty. That's just natural what you're feeling. Okay, natural though is sinful. Natural is not good. Not anymore. In the original creation it was, but it's not now. So when you say it's natural, what do you mean? That's why, don't send me any emails on this topic. I won't read them. But when people talk about natural childbirth, and some will say, I'm not going to get uh, uh, an epidural because I'm going to do it naturally. It ain't natural what you're doing. And I've seen it three times. It ain't natural, okay? I mean, I'm like at the second one, give me the epidural, doc. If she won't take it, I'll take it. My point being is, is that everything we deal with is not natural anymore. Even this argument about immunities, and I'm all for whatever. Whatever your views, I like it. Okay, whatever. Point is, your immunities, you're not naturally immune to just everything. Yes, we've learned over time that things, um, the human body is incredibly resilient even under the fall, but the reality is um, natural is not really natural anymore because of sin's entrance and our capacities are all diminished, whatever they are. Still amazing, wonderfully and fearfully made we are, but nobody here is probably living to be a hundred, maybe a couple, but oh, nobody's going to get to 120. So for all we've come up with, we're still all entropy. We're still, we're degrading. So that's the reality of when we talk about natural um, uh, so when you have a passion or you have an affection, don't trust it. You've got to test it with, it, it, there may be times you have pure thoughts and such, I'm not saying you don't, but that, praise God for those. But don't assume that they're pure. You're better off assuming they're probably not. So when you have this thought about whatever it may be, 
Um, always test it. Now, I don't mean walk around feel guilty because every time I see, see your car, I wish I had your car and not mine and so forth. So you can't live like that. Um, in Christ, you should be free from that, and that's the culmination of this. But I want to recognize that a lot of what I see and feel and do, it's not, I, I will tell you the pure version of it, but the reality in my heart is different. But the reason why I want my children to succeed is because I'm such a good dad and want them to do well. No, I want them to make me look good. I want to, and so on and so forth. There's nothing that you you do that really is devoid of some touch of sin. I I always tell the story of Ted Tripp when he was walking up the stairs with two bowls of ice cream, his wife's waiting there, and he looks at him, he's going to give himself the bigger one. He's doing this thing for, even that has something in it that's selfish. So that's the reality of our desires. We have to recognize we should not trust them. And just because you feel like that, well, this is how I feel, and someone will tell you, well, that's natural. That's just, that's only normal. The boys will be boys. Well, boys are sinners, and they're messed up, and they're perverted. That's what you should think. So dads, when you see that young man, he's a sinner. Don't trust him. Now, I'll say the same for girls, but now that I have a girl, I don't care anymore. All I care about is that. All right, my point I hope I'm making is that, that we have got to get away from this humanistic view of mankind is, natu- is basically good. That's not helping anything. And that's causing a lot of the problems in how we interpret sin in the world and even on our own selves. Continuing with the statement, therefore the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented and put to death. Nevertheless, we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation to the imputed or credited righteousness of Christ and are able to please God by walking in the Spirit. It doesn't leave us in despair. We just recognize we must go to the gospel. We have to go from this place of corruption to Christ. We have to rest in him. We need his righteousness. I don't rest in him so that, so that I become righteous. I rest in him so his righteousness becomes mine because I, there's no possible way to take my, my acts and make them righteous apart from being in the lens of Jesus. So I have to have his righteousness to stand before God. When I know I have his righteousness because I trust in him wholly in none of what I do, when it's in him, that gives me the capacity now to see sin for what it is and start to see defeats over the sin, victory over the sin. Because it's in Christ. It's not because Christ has given me the ability now to make myself right. No, he's given me his righteousness. There's a big difference here in how we view these things. And so all this emphasis on the deadness of our works and our sin and our perversions and such should do one thing. It should drive you to Christ. And as you're in Christ, now you have a different demeanor about these things. And you can now be honest about them. I can tell you honestly what I struggle with. And I would hope you would not cast me off, but rather you would remind me of the gospel and that we together would fight and mortify whatever the thing is. We could talk openly about it without it being such a hush-hush thing, whatever it may be. Because every one of us has something that we don't want the person next to us to know exactly about, but they've got something like that too. Okay, let's look at the statements a little more closely. We affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. 
Romans 6, 11, 12, listen closely what it says. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Talking to believers who say they trust in Christ. So consider yourself dead. And notice it doesn't say you're dead in your sin. You're, you're dead to sins now, but it says consider yourself in this way. Recognize your position. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So your passions... There's still sinful passions that reside in you, and it's telling you to check those. Check those. Now, I want to say, absolutely, it's worse to act out on the passion, but the passion is still sin. It's worse to, uh, for it to take root and then carry it out. Just recognize they're both still sins. One is worse, but one takes the other. It starts in one place. So recognize that your passions, don't obey your passions because they are sinful. That's what Romans is saying. Uh, the passions of our mortal, mortal body um, beget greater sin, and that's why we have to mortify them in their passion level first. That's where we have to recognize, admit them, and go from there. In 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So in other words, you could still have some of those passions is what Peter's assuming. Now, in Christ, you can recognize it and go after it, but don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, so we recognize these desires still reside in us, even as believers. In 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So believers, Peter's writing to, he says, Beloved, these are believers, you will still have well up in you these desires that you have to, uh, you have to abstain, you have to fight, you have to resist, you have to struggle against, because they're waging war against your soul. Calvin comments, he says, it seems, however, improper and not according to the usage of Scripture to restrict the word sin to just outward works as though indeed lust itself were not a sin and as though corrupt desires remaining closed up within and suppressed were not so many sins. The Roman Catholic doctrine that starts to develop teaches something like you can have sins and desires that we're talking about and they're not really sin in themselves. And then they build up a whole system of how to, how to categorize those and deal with those. Um, we'll address that next week. But we're laying groundwork here where the scripture doesn't give that opportunity. It says from the get-go, there are sinful desires that come from who we are before we're in Christ, and we still battle them after we're in Christ, but we battle them. That's the difference. We struggle. We engage in the struggle. We recognize it. Look at the next section of the statement. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. So whatever the desire it is that you have, if someone's not your, your spouse, someone of the, of the same sex, someone outside of the, the, the marital relationship, it's really that simple. That's how we know whether it's, a, it's an illicit desire or not. You know, recognizing beauty is one thing, and there's no doubt there's a purity in that. But most people, most of us struggle with, with where that stops, right? I'm not saying you can help the fact that you have this sin. Um, it's going to come up, but it is sin still that we recognize when it goes to a certain level. And, and analyzing it too much becomes very difficult because so much stuff is an admixture. Um, it's just better to assume the worst about our, our desires than it is to assume, oh, I could trust my first inclination on things. No, not really. We shouldn't. Um, but it's not also to say we should walk around constantly in sackcloth and ashes about how evil every thought we have is. Um, but, again, it's an, honest, it's an honesty that we're trying to um, express here. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is, in itself, is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. In Romans 8, 
13 and 14. Paul writes, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So it becomes a spiritual life you live once you're in Christ. And then the battle you recognize rightly, everything's a spiritual issue. Everything's a spiritual battle at that point. And as a Christian, we may take that for granted, but the fact you even know that is a great, should be a great assurance to you. I hope what you're not getting from this is, oh man, I, I'm so sinful, I, I can't believe it, I can't be forgiven. No, if you're a believer, you're forgiven. We'll, we'll get to that capstone. But recognize that the fact that God will give you awareness that this is really a spiritual issue you're dealing with is a great sign of your, uh, the, uh, for assurance for you. Now, there may be reasons why you struggle with certain sins, exposure to these things since the time you were young, um, it could, it could be any number of things that have, have occurred to you or you've gotten into and just got into it, and it's what it is. God's grace is still sufficient to help you in that. It just may be more difficult for you, so you need more help with that. But the fact that that even concerns you or that you're concerned, that's a great, that shows that God is at work in you, you're his child, and you're engaging in that battle. It doesn't mean you're not his child. It's the opposite of that. It's that you just are recognizing um, God's special hand on your life to see things spiritually, and now you see things the world's telling is not spiritual, but you know they are. You realize it really is a spiritual issue, uh, because that's who you are. You're a body-soul nexus. Um, I'll, I'll kind of start to close with an illustration that just came across my feed this week. All right, many of you probably know who Will Smith is. He's a, an actor, a great actor. Um, all the way from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air from my time. He's 53 years old, so we're almost the exact same age. I'm just a little younger than he is. So I watched him, you know, growing up, watched him develop as an actor and so forth. Always very impressed with his work. Now, I, I remember some early interviews where he would talk about his Christian upbringing. Now, I don't know how Christian it really was, because I know for a fact that, like, when he was 15 or 16, he convinced his parents to have his girlfriend move in with them, and they were in the same room and such and so forth. So I don't think his practices were Christian, but he would say that he grew up with certain Christian teachings, and as he grew up, um, you didn't see this on the front because he was very good at keep. he's always been very good at putting on a front, looking really well put together and balanced as a person. And in interviews, he comes off as more balanced. He doesn't come off as someone who's just full of license and just lives a lifestyle um, that's terrible. But underlying, he pretty much did live that lifestyle. Just, you know, multiple sexual partners most of his life. Um, even when he got married to Jada uh, Pinkett, um, he... In her, she comes from a background that's completely licensed, like there was no Christian background and didn't believe in a traditional model of marriage, meaning one woman with one man. And so early on in their marriage, they started struggling with infidelities, both of them committing them because of their lifestyle and such and who they were in contact with. And just in recent years, they came to this agreement, you know what, um, it's just who we are. Um, that's who people really are. We shouldn't condemn each other for this, so we should have an open marriage and then conduct ourselves however, as long as there's a communication that goes on. Now, the thing that's interesting is it'll be cast as though this is normal and they're doing all right, but they're constantly, like you'll know, these 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 um, stories burgeon up about how they're struggling personally with all sorts of psychologically and, and all the rest of that. Um, they're not living lives that are happy. They're struggling constantly. It's a difficult challenge. But what I wanted to share with you is what I think is descriptive of the, uh, the error that people think often. Will Smith said in an interview just last week, after talking to this therapist who supposedly set him free from all his wrong ideas about his desires and his thoughts. This is the connection to what we're talking about. He said, what she, the therapist, was doing was essentially cleaning out my mind, letting it know that it was okay to be me and who I, to, to be who I was. 
I was okay to think, and he names a couple different ladies who are fine, um, and he has re had relationships. It's okay for me to think this. It doesn't make me a bad person that I'm married, and I think that this woman is beautiful. Whereas, in my mind, in my Christian upbringing, even my thoughts were sins. That was really the process that the therapist worked me through to let me realize that my thoughts were not sins. And even acting on an impure thought didn't make me a bad person. Now listen to what he just said. My thoughts are not, my thoughts are not bad, there are not sins. But even acting on an impure thought. Wait, wait, hold, hold up, Will. So there's an impure thought. You're just giving yourself life. Acting on an impure thought isn't bad. He just defeats his own point and he's completely conflicted. I predict and I'm not a prophet, that you'll see constant unrest in his life continuing going forward and his, his wife's life. And his children are a mess. Um, now, we could all have children who are a mess. I'm not saying there's 101 ways to mess their, your children up, but I'm saying it makes sense that there would be such challenge going on in their family life because I think they're generally people who are striving after, you know, a peace. And they have means and so, and talents and intelligence. And but the bottom line is the same desires well up no matter what your means are and they, they wrestle. And then if you have more opportunity like someone in this case, it just becomes even more difficult. Um, more could be said about what he described, but you see what he's condemning. It's the Christian idea that thoughts are sins. That's been my problem the whole time. The reason why I've been in such unrest for 53 years is because I listen to those Christians tell me my thoughts, they're not, they're not sinful. In fact, my impure thoughts, I, even that, I'm not a bad person if I act on them. Well, which impure thoughts? How impure, Will? What does it count? What do you say is impure? Is pedophilia okay for you? Is it, like, wh where is it? And this is, the, this is the, the state of the world around us. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians, though, um, fall into some of the same kinds of, of really uh, justifying. It says in the statement continuing, nevertheless, we must, must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the credited or imputed righteousness of Christ. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say there's no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who have finally defeated sin in their life. That's no gospel. It says for those who are in Christ Jesus. How are you in Christ Jesus? You recognize all these sins are true of you and that God justly should pour his wrath upon you and you flee from your sins to him the way he has provided to have our sins forgiven, and we go to Christ, and we believe on him, we're in Christ. Now, even though we're still struggling with sin, we are in Christ. And from that place, we have our, our beachhead to see sin start to be defeated and ultimately destroyed when Jesus comes again or when we go to him. And we see all of the fullness of his salvation realized in our life when he eradicates and eliminates sin in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, he made Jesus to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. We give our sin to Christ, Christ gives his righteousness to, ours, to us, that's what God sees. It was never based on you doing better. It was because he did this great exchange. And we know it's justified because our sins do get paid for. They, God is not mocked by our sin. They're paid for in full by Christ, and then we receive his righteousness. The last statement, and are able to please God by walking in the Spirit. 
I'll close by reading Romans 8, 3 through 6, which gives you the culmination of how our desires fill into or fit into the whole of this thing. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is a struggle against the remaining sin that we all have, and our desires constantly remind us of this fact. And while our sins are legally paid for and the righteousness of Christ is credited to us, we still have that remnant of sin that needs to be constantly rooted out. Our desires are a key checkpoint for us. And what we do, or what we think, I should say, that no one else knows about, we wouldn't say it aloud, these things are testimonies to us of how much we need Christ. It should always drive us back. It shouldn't make us feel, oh, I'm not a believer because of No, it should make you go to Jesus. Jesus will never cast you out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to go through another deep topic here on these statements. I pray that all of us would be impacted by what we've heard and that we would cling to the promises of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.